the Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. W.H. Weiscarver, a recent guest on the show, has pledged 50% of the proceeds from his book Twilight of Empire from sales between October 1st and October 31st to support the Tom Sumner program. W.H. Weiscarver, a former National Security Advisor and counsel for the U.S. Senate Armed Services Committee, pulls no punches, fusing history with political intrigue in Twilight of Empire, the third of four planned novels in the Resurrection Saga series. W.H. Carver's book, Twilight of Empire, shows that the U.S. has all the wealth, science, and resources to solve every issue we face today. Twilight of Empire by W.H. Carver is available on Amazon and Apple Books. For more information and to support the Tom Sumner program, visit whyscarver.com. This is Bear Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. And welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the third half of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. I guess this hour is uh, the director of Northern Colorado Writers. She is a novelist, short story writer, and essayist who brings her fascination and background in psychology, forensic, criminology, and victim advocacy to her latest novel called Complicit. A Legacy of Silence by Amy Rivers, and she joins me by phone. Hi, Amy. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. Um, how much of this book is about entertainment and storytelling, and how much is about edu- education and moral compass? I think I like to think that it's basically a good balance of the two. So maybe a 50-50 split. I definitely want my readers to be entertained, but I am hoping that they'll also take away some valuable knowledge about some of the things that I write about, including the interpersonal violence and sexual assault angle. And how did, how did this story uh, come to you? Um. You know, I start writing most of my books, 
starting with a character. And I had this idea in my head that I wanted to write about sisters, like a very strained sister relationship. So it kind of started there. I'm from a small town, and I'm always really intrigued by the way that small towns function. So um, I do write about violence that happens in, you know, in society as we know it. And I do write realistic fiction. So I started thinking about, you know, what would happen if you had some human trafficking happening in a small town and it had been happening for a long time and everybody was sort of aware or, you know, in some way many people in the town were complicit or were possibly, you know, guilty of and then applied that to my sister's situation and was thinking, you know, what would happen if both sisters had been affected by this trafficking ring in one way or another? And it sort of went from there. Now, you said you grew up in a small town, and the protagonist in this book um, is uh, a forensic psychologist who suffers a violent attack and moves back to her hometown, which is... I'm assuming a small town. It, has that been something that has happened, or have you found yourself uh, in your professional life before writing um, longing for a simpler small town life? I definitely have. Um, I lived in, worked in Seattle for a really long time. And when I had my son, I wanted to move back home because I wanted to be near my family and I wanted to be somewhere familiar and smaller. And so all of those things appeal to me. And I think I've always kind of known exactly how my protagonist, Kate, would feel in thinking that going back to her childhood home is going to feel safe and comfortable and known and, you know, sometimes that's not really what happens. Yeah, I was going to say, that idea. Un- until it doesn't. <laughs> until it doesn't. <laughs> Which is really at the heart of this story, because she gets all settled in, but she gets thrown back into her her old life. Well, yeah, and Kate, you know, Kate's problem really is that she returned home looking for safety, but she's also kind of running away from having to deal with a problem that she sort of didn't see coming and probably should have, and it's really thrown her in a way she wasn't expecting. And so she goes home to try and be safe, but really, you know, she's hiding out. And so it's both that she's pulled into this investigation that's happening in town, but also that her own curiosity and her own her own drive, the things that sparked her interest in psychology in the first place, won't really let her just leave it alone. She isn't able to hide out anymore. Now, something something happens. She's working in a school, and she um, is is relatively happy and and feeling pretty good about uh, being the school psychologist and her work with her students and so on, until a student disappears, and then. Uh, her compl- she has a complicated relationship with the lead detective. Is it a spoiler alert, or, or what is that all about? No, um, actually, if you start reading the book, you start out right away getting to know these two characters, Kate and Roman. Kate is our protagonist, and she grew up in this small town with Roman Aguilar, who's um, her her best friend growing up. He's her best friend and confidant she spends all her time with him and 
their relationship gets real complicated when it sort of turns out that he probably has some feelings for her and she wants out of town. She wants to go and pursue her dreams. She wants to go and study. She knows that the things that she wants in her professional life, she cannot get by staying in the town. So she kind of shuts him down before he even has a chance to reveal his feelings to her and their relationship is, it suffers from it, you know, instead of being able to come back from that, things are awkward, they don't talk. And then before you know it, it's been two decades and they have no relationship anymore. So she moves back to town and they're very, they're basically avoiding each other. You know, they can't help but run into each other every once in a while because it's a small town and they know a lot of the same people, but they are not talking and they are very um, intentionally trying to avoid having to have contact with one another because neither one of them really knows how to approach trying to be around each other. There's still a lot of bad feelings and awkwardness and all of those things. So, you know, when she this student disappears and she's in this position where she might have information. Roman has no choice but to come in and actually talk with her about it. And, you know, as much as we try to put our professional, you know, we try to detach our personal and our professional so that we can put that professional face forward, there's still a lot of human emotion there and sometimes it's hard. And so there's a lot of resentment that comes out. You know, it's hard for them to figure out how to pave a path where they can work together. Is it tough um, developing characters that that um, that fit in a, in a small town? You know, I think that for me, it was I was lucky because the small town I grew up in is actually the small town in this book, Alamogordo, New Mexico, and it was small in that we knew everybody and you had a lot of the same friends growing up all the way from, you know, elementary school through high school. There, there were some complications because of that, obviously, because everybody was very intertwined, but we're also located next to a military base. And so there were a lot of people who came in and out of town. So we were exposed, you know, not only to the people we always knew, but also to a lot of new faces, new stories, new experiences. And so, I don't ever find it all that hard. I was just thinking that, that, you know, when you, a lot of times writers, when they're creating characters, will create a character as an amalgam of people they know. But if you've been living in a big city for 20 years, a lot of the people you know are people that belong in a bigger city or seem like they fit in a bigger city. And I just wondered if it, if it, if that complicates making, uh, uh, characters that are true to their small town surrounds? Um, it doesn't for me. I'm sure it's probably a challenge in some cases, but for me, I've always been still a small town girl at heart. So that's, that tends to be where I go back to, you know, really in all of the books that I've written, I'm always back in that small town atmosphere because partially because it is easier to imagine relationships happening in that space. You know, when I was living in Seattle, it was very rare that I would go out somewhere and just see people that I knew. I knew lots of people, but it's just such a big space and there's just so much going on that unless you had intentional plans to meet with somebody, you didn't just run into people you knew all that often. And so it's a lot different being in that small town environment. And I think that's my comfort zone. So I tend to gravitate back to that. Is there 
a special reason, a trend in civilization, or at least in American uh, culture and society, that that plants psychology into so many of the thrillers that we see in the movies and read in books? Well, I think that people are naturally curious about why other people make the decisions that they make. You know, we, we do wonder about people's motivations. Um, we are also inundated with just television and and movies and books and all kinds of information that really does delve into the backgrounds of certain stories, whether it's true crime or just, you know, the nightly news, people, you know, human interest sorts of things. I think we're, we're drawn to that as humans. We want to know how other people think. And so as fun as it might be to have, you know, some psycho killer going around killing everybody uh, in our book, it's also equally interesting to know why, you know, what led them to this place. And so I think it's pretty natural for people to want to explore that. How did you start writing? Um, I've been writing forever. Uh, I was actually really lucky. I grew up in this teeny tiny little small town, teeny tiny little elementary school, but we had a lot of creative writing programs going on there. And so I wrote my first book when I was in third grade. (laughs) Um, It was a romance by a third grader. So if you can imagine how that looked, uh, you're probably right on the money as to just how ridiculous the whole thing was. But we had to write the story and illustrate it and put the book together. And so I got a really good feel very early on in my life about what went into actually producing a book. And most of the writing that I did between then and moving to Colorado uh, really had more to do with academics, with um, business writing. I ran an internet marketing company for many years, so I wrote a lot of client website content and things of that nature. And it wasn't really until probably about seven or eight years ago that I started writing fiction again. And even that, I was writing personal essays first. Um, My very first published piece, paid published piece, uh, was a essay that I wrote about working with one of the nurse examiners that I was a supervisor for in my hometown. So I worked for about two and a half years as the director for a sexual assault nurse examiners program, and I wrote a story about this interaction that I had with one of my nurses, and that got published in Chicken Soup for the Nurse's Soul. Um, And so that was kind of the start. And then I started writing fiction, but I realized that I wanted to write about some of the same topics, so I still tackle some of those topics. I just do it in a fictional world. Can you work in the field of sexual assault and not want to share some of those stories, aside from confidentiality issues? It's hard. Um, You know, I think that for me, I feel really compelled to want to share those stories because I want other people to you know, have some empathy for what victims go through, for what first responders go through. Um, It feels sometimes like it's so much easier to um, have empathy and have sympathy for people who are in those situations when we have experienced it ourselves or when we know somebody who has experienced it firsthand. And I sort of picture this world where we don't actually have to all have been victimized. Amy, (laughs) uh, yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I have to take a short break here. Can you stand by for mm -hmm. a few minutes and we'll talk some more? 
Absolutely. Okay, we're going to let our broadcast partner squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break, and we'll be back with author Amy Rivers right after Hello, this. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You know, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom. This is my favorite interview always. You, you, <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. 
She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody, as we uh, continue my conversation with the author of a new book, uh, a novel called Complicit, A Legacy of Silence by Amy Rivers. Amy, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. Oh, that was fun, actually. That was the best uh, array of commercials I think I've heard in a long time. I love them. <laughs> well, I'm glad. And and I owe, I guess, a hat tip to uh, Michigan's Attorney General for part of that. Um, yeah, that one was amazing. I loved that, every second of it. Isn't that great? She does. Uh, she is actually the uh, Michigan Attorney General, and she does these YouTube PSAs and scripts them all out, acts them out. They're, they're just really fun. Anyway, back to uh, Complicit, A Legacy of Silence. We were talking uh, before the break, Amy, about um, your having worked in a field um, about uh, sexual assault and how anybody that's worked in that field, you know, really has a tough time not sharing those stories. And you have this opportunity through your writing to mask or create new stories with similar characteristics to things that are going on in, uh, unfortunately, in real life to share these stories. And and I, I had to cut you off to go to break. Do you want to pick up from there? Um, sure. I, I just, I think that for me, it's really important that we're really looking at accurate and realistic depictions of what's happening, you know, both for the people who are working with survivors and victims, and also, you know, for those people, too, so that they know that they're not alone, that there are people that see them, you know, and hopefully that we don't have to learn always by having to experience that stuff ourselves, that we can learn to be empathetic in some other way. And I think that fiction provides a really good framework for that. You know, it it's allows you to kind of contemplate deeper and darker topics without having to feel like they're so oppressive. Now, I, I mentioned in the introduction uh, back at the top of the hour, Amy, that... Um, you know, this book um, draws on your fascination and background in psychology, forensic criminology, and victim advocacy. How did those three legs end up holding up your table? Um, I was working in my hometown as an internet marketing person, and the opportunity, I had done a lot of management, and the opportunity to become the interim director and then the full-time, you know, permanent director of the sexual assault nurse examiners program, uh, which covered two counties, that opportunity came in front of me and I wanted to take it. I had been on the board of directors for that organization for some years and it was an organization that I really believed in. And so I wanted to help as much as I could. And I spent several years working there. And while I was doing that, I was actually pursuing my master's in, um, it was an interdisciplinary master's with psychology and political science so that I could look at how the 
criminal justice system and psychology interact and intersect. I don't know, when you said psychology and political science, I was hoping you could make us uh, or help us understand Congress. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's harder than it seems. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. Um, But how did you shift from working in that field to uh, becoming director of uh, Northern Colorado Writers? I feel like I, I kind of end up in the right place at the right time a lot, um, which is a good thing, but also can be kind of complicated because I have a hard time not taking on passion projects. So uh, the previous director of Northern Colorado Writers was getting ready to move to a different state. And um, it, it is the organization of my heart. It's my writing heart here in, in Colorado. It's where my writing group was that I first had was based out of. And so um, when she got ready to leave, I didn't want to see things change. And so I stepped up. You know, it's it's interesting in some ways with your background, having worked with sexual assault victims and the confidentiality that needs to be maintained. And then being a writer is, is a very... Um, solitary endeavor um how how much are you comfortable with interacting with readers at at book signings and and readings and and with other writers through the northern colorado writers group i am a pretty extroverted person so which maybe makes me a little bit different than some of my author friends but i really enjoy interacting with um, with other writers for absolutely sure. And then anytime I do a writing or reading event out in the world, I always get approached by people who want to talk about the topics that I'm writing about. And I love talking about that stuff, even though sometimes it's difficult and sometimes, you know, it's, it's dark stuff. It's, it's hard to talk about sometimes, but I do enjoy having those conversations and opening that dialogue. Is Risk from sexual assault greater in larger cities than smaller cities, or is there even a distinction? I think that because there's more population in larger cities, you do see um, sexual assault and other kinds of interpersonal violence more frequently. However, uh, being in a small town is not is not a guarantee that that won't happen, and in fact, you know, what I find is that those types of crimes happen everywhere. It really doesn't matter how small. I mean, is it is it a per capita thing, Amy, where in a bigger city there's more people, so there are going to be more Absolutely. instances? Or is it because there are a lot of people crammed in together more so I, I than really there would be in a small town? I really think that it's more a per capita thing. It's just there are more people because it is happening everywhere. And in your work, past and present, have you um, have you come across any, any numbers that would put that in perspective for people? Um, yeah, I mean, there are lots of statistics out there over the years, and I will tell you that, you know, since I've spent the last few years writing, I haven't been staying completely on top of all of the statistics, but, uh, you know, the Back in the day when I was working, it was very easy to say that, you know, one in 
four or one in three, depending on what you're looking at, women will be sexually assaulted at some point in their life. Um, often that it's one in 20, some on 21 men will be sexually assaulted in, in their lifetime. And the most common victims of that particular type of crime tend to be women in their uh, ages like 18 to 24 in their early adulthood. And if you can imagine how that kind of violence might affect a person who is really at the beginning of their life, you know, is just starting to come into their own. Uh, that is really why it's such a problem and such really a public health problem for our country. How telling is the title of your new novel, Complicit, A Legacy of Silence? Because it sounds like it's covering really two things there. I, I do think that the title really intends to implicate the whole town. Um, You know, it's not really possible to have every single person in a town be guilty or be complicit in any kind of crime. However, um, I do think that small towns in particular are very good at breeding secrecy and silence, and we tend to protect our own, you know, somebody that we think is a good a good person or is an upstanding citizen, and we don't always look very closely at what that person is actually doing or what they are capable of. And so, um, so yeah, the the title is meant to sort of point a little bit of a finger, at least in terms of you know making us as readers consider whether or not it's possible that you know a lot of people know that something bad is going on and are just staying silent about it because that is the nature of the beast. When you're putting together uh, the things that you write, whether they're short stories or essays or a novel like Complicit, um, are you able to draw on knowledge you already have, or do you have to do a certain amount of research? Both. I definitely have a really good base of knowledge, and I am—I like to go back to school and learn things if there's something that I don't know. So that's where my forensic criminology uh, grad certificate came into being. I just needed extra knowledge, but I do do a lot of research, um, not just academic research about statistics and about the crimes themselves and that sort of thing, but also I do a lot of uh, reading of case studies and victim accounts of different kinds of crimes so that I can get an idea of how people are affected. And how many, how many books have you written now? Uh, this Complicit is my fourth novel. So, are they, are um, they all standalone, or would you ever consider a, a series? Uh, so Complicit is the first book in a series. Um, it will have at least three books. Uh, that's what I have planned out at the moment. We'll see how things change as they go. <laughs> did did you know that when you started writing Complicit that it was going to be at least a trilogy, that it was going to be part of a series, or did you get to the end of the, of the first book, uh, you know, uh, get to the end of Complicit and look at Kate and, and think, well, wait, there's more? I knew that it was going to be at least three books when I started because I knew that it was going to take some time to untangle everything that had been happening in this small town for so many generations. That's just a lot of a lot of secrets and a lot of things that have to be uncovered and revealed, and it would be really difficult to do that. I think authentically, 
in the course of one book and still be true to my characters and spend enough time really getting to know them and having them grow personally. And so I knew it would be three books. After I wrote the first book, I thought to myself, I really like Kate and I kind of want to keep writing with her. So that's where I say, you know, it might end up being more than three books just because I really do like the characters so much. Where does the idea for a story come from? Do you come up with the characters first or the story first and then cast characters into it? How, how does that process work? I always start with character because I'm really interested in people. That is always my first thought. So, you know, I had Kate pretty well formed in my head before I actually knew what kind of a plot I was going to throw her into. I knew that I wanted her to be a forensic psychologist. I knew that I wanted her to have some kind of strained relationship with her sister. So I already knew what her familial life was going to look like before I even knew what the circumstances of the story were going to be. Um, When I thought about Roman, I wanted to, you know, put him in there and have him and Kate have this really complicated relationship. So I was already shaping those things well before I decided that human trafficking was the topic that I wanted to address in this book. And is is Kate positioned, or at least, and I hope this isn't a spoiler alert, but positioned <laughs> by the end of the book that she's going to be um, obviously involved in these kinds of things going forward? Yes. Definitely so. Um, And that's what needed to happen in this book is she needed to kind of find her, her courage again. She needed to figure out that being safe in her hometown was just a myth that she'd made up in her mind and that she could get involved again. And how's Roman with all that? (laughs) Well, Roman has loved Kate forever and he might just end up loving her again. So you'll have to read to find out. (laughs) Gotcha. Well, that makes perfect sense um so you know there are going to be two more uh how long did it take to to write this book and um how far are you in the process for the next two so it took you know it takes me about a year to write and edit and do all of the work to take the book from you know concept to publication um This book, the second book, which is going to be coming out next year, probably in the summer, is called Stumble and Fall. And uh, it's taken a little bit longer, mostly because the pandemic completely upended how we do business at the writing organization and how my personal life looked. (laughs) I have two kids, so school was kind of crazy. And so it's it's been a little bit of a different challenge trying to get things out on on a regular timeline for me <laughs> due to the pandemic. I, well, and and talking about timelines, um, how, how do you approach writing? Do you have um, a very, very carefully thought through outline and write from that outline, or do you sit down and, and sort of binge write and the story kind of tells itself? I am what we lovingly call a pantser. Um, I have a general idea of where I want this story to go, but I don't outline. And so what ends up happening is I brute force my way through the first draft, which is usually just complete garbage. And then I spend (laughs) the next, you know, many months revising and revising and rewriting. And that's when the story really starts to come out. The first thing I have to do, though, is just absolutely 
sit down and word vomit and it's not spelled well and things don't make any sense and there are plot holes everywhere. So I do most of my work in revision. And and do you write to uh, a, a schedule or do you just sit down and start writing and don't get up until you have a certain amount accomplished? I try to write to a schedule mostly because I have so many other responsibilities that I juggle that that's the only way that writing actually gets done. Um, of course, you know, that gets interrupted all the time, but my best writing hours are in the morning. And so I try to sit down and at least do a few uh, solid hours of writing before I continue on with all the administrative work. And, you know, as an independent author, I do all my own promotion. And so there's just a lot of a lot of business stuff that has to happen during the day. And so I try to make time in the morning for writing that's just uninterrupted. And how much of the, um, as you write these stories, um, and, and this particular one, Complicit, A Legacy of Silence, it is kind of a dark topic. Can you have fun in it? Yeah. Yeah. Or is it too I mean, serious? Is it one of those things that it's just, it's inappropriate to be funny? No, I mean, I think that, you know, the reality of our lives is that, one, we use humor to try and make things more palatable and more comfortable. So there is humor, there is romance, there is life happening alongside all of this horrible stuff, because that's what happens in real life. Are there... Do you have favorite writers that that you might credit with informing your writing and, and maybe even your voice a little bit? Absolutely. Um, I read voraciously, and two of my all-time favorite authors, especially in this genre, are Karen Slaughter and Lisa Gardner. Um, they write a lot of similar or, you know, same topics as I write, and um, they're really just inspiring what they do, how they tell the stories, and how they deal with uh, characters and, you know, what their emotions look like and what their families look like and how their lives have been affected by trauma it comes out really strongly and, and really, I think, really compassionately in their writing. Karen Slaughter's been on this show a couple of times. Um, I adore her. <laughs> and, and I remember asking David Baldacci because she had written a, uh, a quote on the dust cover of, of his book at the time. And I, and I noticed that he had done one for her, and I asked him if they were part of a club or something. <laughs> <laughs> How do you know each other? <laughs> um, I mean, you know, I think that writers, we all have to find our communities. And so, you know, I belong to the International Thriller Writers Association, which... I think both of those people also do, and we have um, we have opportunities to meet each other and to get to know each other, and we're all kind of working at different levels and, um, you know, in different situations. Obviously, Karen Slaughter has been writing a lot longer than I have and is has got some, you know, brilliant books under her belt, and so, um, you know, I, I look up to those people, and I try and emulate as best I can how they care for their characters and their worlds that they create. Is is reading other writers um, a, a good way to develop and, and 
learn how to do it? I think so. Um, I mean, I think if you are writing for the purpose of having people read your writing, you need to know what readers are looking at, what other people are writing, and what other readers are reading, so that you can kind of maybe not stay within, you know, those confines, but at least be aware of, you know, what are the tropes, what are, what are, you know, what is acceptable and what is not to readers in that particular genre, because, you know, the very worst thing I think you can do as an author is put out a book in a genre that you don't pay attention to and then expect readers to be super enthusiastic about something that doesn't really meet their expectations. In the, in the series, as it evolves, um, Amy, it, it, Complicit, A Legacy of Silence is the first. Um, but as it evolves, will you try to make these standalone books or will they be sequential, do you think? They'll be sequential because they'll be tied together by the human trafficking element of this book. But I try even in series to make it to where you could pick up a second one and not be lost. Um, you know, we'll hope that people will go back and kind of get to know some of the background on the characters, but there'll be enough in uh, for their, you know, forthcoming books that if they picked up book number two, they would be okay. Well, this sounds like a, uh, a fascinating story, and um, I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts and, and some of the material that's in the book with me and the listeners this morning. We're just about out of time, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Amy, do you have a website? I do. It is amyrivers.com. Well, that's easy. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Usually I have to, you know, somebody always says it's, you know, my name and the number 372 or something. <laughs> <laughs> and then you wonder what that number is, right? <laughs> well, yeah, were there 371 other Amy Rivers? Um, but, uh, Amy, thank you so much for spending this time with me, and keep up the good work. Thank you so much, Tom. It was a pleasure. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. That was... Um, award-winning author and director of uh, the North Colorado Writers Project, uh, Amy Rivers, talking about her forensic psychology thriller, Complicit, A Legacy of Silence, which uh, promises to be the beginning of a series, at least, at the very least, a trilogy. Anyway, we will have uh, more of the Tom Sumner program coming up Well, we'll wrap up today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program straight ahead. Armchair Politics is going to hell. Hell, Michigan, that is, and you're invited. On October 27th, Wednesday before Halloween, Armchair Politics will be broadcasting live from 9 a.m. to noon from the Hell Saloon in Hell, Michigan, near Pinckney. 
This will be our first in-person meeting of the Tom Sumner Program's weekly roundtable armchair politics since the beginning of the pandemic. Join me and roundtable regulars Flint's premier political pundit Paul Rosicki on the left and longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter on the right, plus more on Wednesday, October 27, 2021, starting at 9 a.m. at the Hell Saloon. Armchair politics is going to hell, and you can too. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places. So be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Lions. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's, that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I'm willing to admit that. Hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all always. It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a kind and check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. 
As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. The uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. <laughs> I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. The story of Little Blue Riding Hood is true. Only the color has been changed to prevent an investigation. This is the woods. My name is Wednesday. I work out a homicide. Monday, February the 2nd, 10.22 a.m. Bumped into chicken licking. Told me the sky was falling. I booked her on the 614, turned her over to the psychiatrist. Then a call came in at a 5.03. When I was on my way to the 5.03, a 6.18 came in. I added up the 6.14, the 5.03, and the 6.18. Got 1,735. I handed in my paper to the chief. He corrected it. Gave me 100%. Patted me on the head. Told me I was a good cop. 11.45 a.m. it happened. I saw a little girl in a blue hood carrying a basket. I stopped to question her. Pardon me, ma'am. Could I talk to you for just a minute, ma'am? What about? Nothing much, ma'am. Just want to ask you a few questions, ma'am. What's your name? Little Blue Riding Hood. Where are you going, ma'am? Grandma's house. Yes, ma'am. What do you got in the basket? What are you trying to say? I got something in the basket I shouldn't have? No, ma'am. I didn't say that. Then why are you asking me all these questions for? Just routine, ma'am. We just want to get the facts. May I have a look in that basket, ma'am? Be my guest. Let's see. Sawed-off shotgun. Knife, bludgeon, box of dum-dum shells. Nothing suspicious here. All right, ma'am, we may want to talk to you later, so don't leave the woods. She skipped on down the path, but she didn't know I'd seen the concealed compartment in the basket. In it, what I'd suspected all along, goodies. My job, get to Grandma's before she did. I took a shortcut through the strawberry patch. It was sort of a strawberry shortcut. I walked up to the cottage, rang the bell. Come in, dear. 
Okay, Grandma, it's a raid. A raid? Why, I'm just a peace-loving old lady. You've got the wrong grandma. Yes, ma'am. We just want to get the facts. Where'd you get that bump on your head? The sky fell on me this morning. I made a note to book her on the 614 and turned her over to the psychiatrist. I tied her up, put her in the closet, then I put on the grandma suit and got into bed. Come in, ma'am. Hello, Grandma. I got the loot. What are you doing in bed? I'm feeling poorly. But, Grandma, what big ears you have. All the better to get the facts. I just want to get the facts, ma'am. But, Grandma, what a big subpoena you have in your pocket. All the better to serve you with. But, Grandma, what a big 38 police special you have pointed at me. All the better to take you in. You're under arrest. You and your grandma are operating a goodies ring. A cop. I should have known. Known what, ma'am? You look nothing like my grandma. You forgot about the mustache. But I don't have a mustache. I know. But grandma does. Well, I see you broke the goodies ring. How'd you get a lead on her, Joe? I just played a hunch, Frank. It was just a hunch. I played my luck. Sometimes a hunch pays off, sometimes it doesn't. I was just lucky. I just played a hunch, Frank. What you're trying to say, Joe, is you just played a hunch. A lucky guess. Sometimes a hunch pays off, sometimes it doesn't. You just played a hunch. Is that what you're trying to tell me, Joe? Yeah. I just played a hunch. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Tom Sumner. Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com Oh, 
it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner program starting out this uh, week before Halloween Halloween coming up next Sunday and uh, uh, ending up with uh, the worst Beatle cover ever it was our uh, Schlocktober pick of the day and for if you haven't heard every uh, every year during the month of October we pick a different horrible recording every day as our Schlocktober pick of the day. So while everybody else is celebrating Rocktober and Shocktober, uh, we celebrate Schlocktober here on the Tom Sumner program. And I hope you find it as amusing <laughs> as, as I do. Um, I do want to say thanks to all the guests that were on the show today. But first, I, I want to say that we uh, are going to be coming out of the bunker on Wednesday to uh, travel to hell. Hell, Michigan will be at the Hell Saloon with uh, Armchair Politics. We'll have our round, the whole crew, our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki on the left and Henry Hatter on the right. They'll be joined by uh, Janworth Nelson from East Village Magazine. We're going to kick off the opening hour with uh, author and historian uh, Claude Clegg, the author of The Black President, about Barack Obama's legacy. And, uh, and then we'll have our two hours of uh, commentary and analysis of uh, the headlines in politics and current events um, from our roundtable uh, known as Armchair Politics. And you can join us. It's on Patterson Lake Road near Pinckney, Hell, Michigan. It's the Hell Saloon. And uh, it'll be open. You can join us and watch us do the show. It'll be the first time that we've gotten together in person since before the pandemic. So it's, uh, it's really kind of a big and fun deal. We didn't, we didn't go to hell last year because of the pandemic. We figured we were already in hell. But uh, anyway... Let's just say thanks to the guests that were on the show today. I hope you enjoyed them as much as I did. Amy Rivers, the award-winning author of a new book called Complicit, A Legacy of Silence. Before that, we talked to the former FDA director, Richard Williams, who has recently authored a book called Fixing Food, an FDA insider unravels the myths and the solutions. And we started out this morning with... um, 
Book 6. In the uh, Christopher Worthy Father Fortis Mystery Series by David Carlson, Like a Thief in the Night. And that's Smoking George Winters tickling the ivories, letting me know it's time to get out of here. But uh, we're going to be talking with some folks from National Geographic as part of the show tomorrow. In the meantime, good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.